Welcome to The Long Run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's guest is Emil Neweser. Emil is the CEO of Boston-based Ensoma. Ensoma is developing gene editing therapies that can be delivered in a single shot in vivo. The name is derived from the Greek word for in the body. The basic idea is to make these gene editing medicines so they can be given off the shelf to any patient one time and even with a fairly long and complex set of genetic instructions. The hope is to deliver these treatments, which you could call a genetic form of surgery, without having to go through the steps common to some of the first-generation gene editing procedures, which are often performed outside the body or ex vivo. Some of the well-known variations on CRISPR gene editing require a patient to undergo a blood draw and have certain cells isolated in the lab, like hematopoietic or blood-forming stem cells. The patient then undergoes another procedure, such as chemotherapy preconditioning, before the newly engineered cells can be reinfused back into the patient. All of that takes time and money. It's a process that requires careful choreography. And it's not likely to ever reach global scale, especially in poor countries that might someday want access to the curative power of gene editing therapies. And Soma hopes to eliminate the need for all those blood withdrawals and preconditioning therapies and reinfusions. Ensoma was founded in 2021 based on work from Hans-Peter Keim at Fred Hutchinson Cancer Center and Andre Lieber at the University of Washington and incubated by 5AM Ventures. Ensoma announced a $70 million Series A in February of 2021 and an $85 million Series B venture financing in January of 23. It has a partnership with Takeda Pharmaceuticals. The work is still in preclinical development. Emil is a scientist by training with a PhD in molecular toxicology and a focus on oncology from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He has been through a series of startups that have given him a wide variety of experiences in genomics, diagnostics, cell therapy, and antibody drug development. He's been a part of three startups that were ultimately acquired. From 2021 to 2022, he was chairman of the board for the Alliance for Regenerative Medicine. None of this was preordained or predictable when he first got interested in science. Like so many scientific entrepreneurs, Emil discovered his technology interests and inclination to work in startups along the way. And now for a word from the sponsor of the long run, Occam Global. Occam Global is an international professional services firm focusing on executive recruitment, organizational development, and board construction. The firm's clientele emphasize intensely purposeful and broadly accomplished entrepreneurs and visionary investors in the life sciences. Occam Global augments such extraordinary and committed individuals in building high-performing executive teams and assembling appropriate governance structures. Occam serves such opportune sectors as gene cell therapy, neuroscience, gene editing, the intersection of AI and machine learning, and drug discovery and development. Connect with them at www.occam-global.com slash long run. And do you want to be part of the world's largest biotechnology industry event? Come to Boston from June 5 to June 8 for the 2023 Bio International Convention. Join over 14,000 biotech leaders from dozens of countries for one week of partnering, networking, and robust educational sessions. 
with unparalleled networking events like the receptions at Boston's Premier Music Hall, Big Night Live, or the party at the MGM Fenway Music Hall, this is the place you'll want to be this June. Register today at bio.org events. Now, please join me and Emil Nueser on the long run. Emil Nueser, welcome to the long run. Hi there. Thank you very much for having me. So I have to start, Emil, by saying, you know, we have something in common. We're both Badgers. Right. <laughs> At the University of Wisconsin in the 1990s. Um, I'm going to get there on how you got there, but uh, what's one of your favorite memories from your time in Madison? Oh, I think it has to be the union. It has to be the student union and um, just the culture of that union and the way it brought people together, being there with my friends. Uh, sitting out there on the terrace, looking at Lake, Lake Mendota. Yeah, on the terrace. Yeah. One of our great state universities. Okay. Yeah. Well, I, I'm eager to hear how you ended up getting there, but uh, let's let's back up to the beginning. Emil, um, where are you from? I am from a town in rural southern New Jersey called Vineland. It's actually the biggest town in New Jersey by land. Uh, Land-wise, it's the largest town. Uh, Population-wise, not. But uh, I grew up in that rural town called Vineland, went to high school there, um, you know, played soccer and all the normal things. What did your mom and dad do? Um, well, you know, South Jersey's blessed with a lot of sand. And that means that you can, uh, as a raw material, use it for making either glass, like Conti's or Wheaton Glass. That's where you find those companies, like all the scienceware that we, you know, those companies started or have big facilities because there's so much sand. Um, it's also a key ingredient in concrete. So uh, my dad was an engineer, is an engineer, and um, he had um, he worked for various companies and then had his own company making concrete, uh, pre-stressed concrete products like bridges and overpasses and things like that. So that's what brought your family to Vineland. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, they moved there well before I was born, uh, and I lived there until I went to college. Okay, and do you have any brothers, sisters? Yeah, I have a big extended family. I have two sisters and then um, three, my parents divorced and remarried. So I have three stepbrothers on one side and a stepbrother and a stepsister on the other side. So it's pretty big. And I'm the youngest of all of them. Okay. So was this extended group, were they all in the same area of South, uh, South you Jersey? You know, within 45 minutes of each other, we were all sort of, yeah. Okay. So now we're spread out all over the earth, literally in every, practically, you know, different continents, but. Yeah, yeah. So um, what kind of schools did you attend? I'm a public school kid. I went to um, the public schools in Vineland, New Jersey, and then um, went to the University of Delaware for my uh, undergrad. What kind of, how how were those schools? How would you describe that uh, situation? Were they they rigorous, demanding? You know, I mean... I guess as a kid, I'm not sure that I understood that concept, so I'm not sure I even know. I mean, it's a rural community, but it's a it's sort of, uh, you know, Vineland High School is one of the biggest high schools in New Jersey. Um, there were 900 kids in my freshman class, so it was a very big school. Um, so I think there was a lot to experience because of that. It was a big, bigger school, but there was more to experience than you would expect in a small town. So you can get actually lost in a big crowd. Yeah. Um, yeah. What, what kind of student were you? I, I think I was a student that did what he needed to do to get the A minus the B. Uh, you know, I never, I mean, um, I wouldn't say that I applied myself the way, you know, I probably could have, but I did well enough to move along. Um, 
I was an athlete. I liked to play soccer. And um, so, and I guess sort of, yeah, I'm not sure that I was remarkable in any other way. Did you, uh, did the light bulb turn on for you in those years about science? Yeah, I, I mean, I always liked nature and biology. Uh, it started with just sort of, you know, just being fascinated with, with the outside, with the dirt and with, you know, the marsh. Um, and then uh, I had a few teachers along the way who I think crystallized that for me. I had a high school biology teacher, both for my freshman year and the, the you know, the senior year uh, AP class that was the same teacher. And he, I do remember, you know, being in that class and feeling like, in fact, I can remember specific classes uh, where I thought, wow, this is really cool. Like it is, biology is really cool. Um, and I had the same experience in college with a, a professor who was just a really great teacher. Um, How'd you he, end up going to Delaware? I see, you know, um, it was a good school known for chemistry. I was in, interested in biology and chemistry. I wanted to do this thing called biochemistry. Remember, this was a long time ago, uh, which wasn't common as a major, in fact. Um, well, what years are we talking? Yeah, we're talking about 87, 86. Okay. Know. So biology and chemistry, yeah. you're going to learn the fundamentals of both. Yeah. Well, in theory, I, I didn't even know what it meant, but I wanted to be a biochemistry major. Um, I went to the University of Delaware because there's a really strong chemistry department there. And because of DuPont and all the endowments and all that, it's a really good school and a good biochemistry program, too. So I went there because of that. Not that um, far from home. Not that far. It was, you know, a little over an hour away, mm -hmm. just far enough over the line to be out of state tuition, which I'm sure my parents loved. <laughs> I, I, I still think about that decision because I got good enough grades that I had um, sort of a free ride in New Jersey. Uh -huh. And yet I drove 20 miles over the line to go to college to pay full tuition at the University of Delaware. And I think, how would I respond now as a dad, you know, with three kids to that decision? And I guess, you know, you have, the kids have to make, they have to live their life. Well, but then so, tuition wasn't as much as it is. Yeah, now. it's not, it's not <laughs> as bad as it is now. Yeah. Um, okay. So you did, how did you settle on biochemistry as your major? I, I, you know, I loved biology. I was, um, I thought that chemistry was in interesting and hard and mathematical. And it was the, the mathematical application of biology sort of in my brain. I liked those two. Um, I think it just sounded cool. I mean, frankly, I think as a kid, you just, you know, you just, I was just following whatever sounded interesting. Mm -hmm. um, so I, and I didn't know how I would use it or what I'd do with it. I never worked in a lab or done research, of course, as a high school kid. I was part of like the medical explorers club. I thought I might go to med school, uh, maybe, you know, and so I was doing, you know, things in high school that are associated with that, going to the hospital and doing, you know, rotations and stuff like whatever. But in the end, I decided not to do that for reasons we can talk about, but. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, but uh, so you finish up at Delaware uh, and then what? Yeah, I was actually, I started as a, bio, a dual major in biology and chemistry and i had a minor in french actually and i ended up dropping the chemistry major to a minor and dropping the minor because i couldn't get it all done in time but yeah so um i went then i while i was at delaware um i needed to earn some money to help pay my tuition i got a work study program starting out in a psychology lab it was a learning and motivation lab where we were giving rats rewards for running through mazes and testing their behaviors. And, and I was the undergrad, you know, feeding 
cages and cleaning, whatever. And then doing, helping to do some of the experiments. That led me to a work study program in the, in the biochemistry department with a, this other professor, Hal White, who's just, he was a great teacher. And I spent two years in his lab um, and I ended up getting credits and doing it. And I actually got a paper out of it as an undergrad. And, um, and I learned a lot about the lab and Hal was a good mentor. And that led me to, well, you know, the lab's kind of interesting and I don't know. And I, I got a job at DuPont right there in town at the Stein Haskell Research Center, which is right there in, next to next to the university. And that led me to thinking about um, going to graduate school because I, I guess I, I liked science. Uh, I liked biology and, you know, a PhD sounded really hard and sounded like, you know, an interesting thing to do. So this was a part-time job? Uh, kind of yeah. Yeah. It was like part-time and, and, and yeah. Yeah. During school, when I worked in the biochemistry lab, it was like a three credit class. Um, it, it shifted from making money to just getting credit for it. And then I worked in kitchens on the side to pay the rent. Okay. So you're thinking, um, go get a PhD yeah. and what, become a research scientist, a faculty member like Hal? Yeah, maybe. I, I don't know. I don't think I thought that far ahead. Mm -hmm. um, I just liked science. I like the science. I realized that I like the scientific method. I like the language that it is, that it gives us, the way that it, as a tool, allows us to be rigorous and honest, right? But and, but not personal. Like, I don't know. I, just, I think it brings out the best in people if you if one applied correctly. I guess part of it was that, that I just, my first experience with that, I thought, this is really cool. Um, so I, I don't know. I, I looked for graduate programs, ended up at the University of Wisconsin. But no, I, I pretty quickly knew right away that I didn't want to be a professor. That was the next chapter, being at the UW and figuring out what I wanted to do. Yeah. What was your graduate school experience like there? Um, well, I was in the oncology program. Um, I did my PhD with Henry Pito. He's uh, an old school, you know, uh, National Cancer Advisory Board. Uh, he was the director of the McArdle Institute, which is the world's first cancer research institute there in the University of Wisconsin. He was a bigwig. Um, he's passed away now, but um, I was one of his last grad students. But so I had, you know, the imprimer of, of Henry Piteau and everything that he had done and him um, and his umbrella sort of to operate under. But he also was um, a less involved uh, PI. You know, I really didn't directly work with him on my thesis, frankly. We could have a whole conversation about that. So it was really uh, a, a chapter in self-motivation and self-direction. And it took me long, a long time. It took me six and a half years to finish Um I, you know, thought about quitting multiple times. I, I even told him, went into his office twice and said, okay, Dr. Pito, I'm, I'm, I'm quitting, <laughs> you know, uh, to twice in those six years, but I managed to, um, and, but I learned lessons through that. So, so it was one of those sink or swim kind of, yeah, got to, got to learn your independence, totally re read swim. the literature, yeah. figure out how to run the experiment. Yeah. Up to yeah, you. Yeah, design your own, you know, program. It was, uh, yeah, it felt like it to me. I mean, it, that was definitely the challenge for me. I think just, you know, life provides, you know, graduate school is a different challenge for everybody. For me, it was about finding that motivation, that self-motivation. You know, every day that you're there, if you're not, you know, you could go, you know, do something, go for a hike or whatever, but that's one more day you're going to be there. Right. And so it's, it's, you, you come to the realization that it's up to you, uniquely you, if nobody else is pushing you to figure out how to get this done. 
And I just couldn't stand the idea that I wouldn't get it done. It was just, you know, even though I was close at times. Mm -hmm. So it was really for me about finding that, you know, method of uh, that internal motivation to get it done. So it was hard. Uh, right. And it is for a lot of people. Uh, what were you studying? What was keeping you yeah. going? Um, I was working in, um, so his lab was a liver cancer lab. And we were working on drugs that cause liver cancer as an off, uh, you know, as a toxicity, of course. Um, one, the main drug being a drug used to treat breast cancer, tamoxifen. And we were trying to understand the mechanisms of the way it functioned both as an anti-estrogen, but also in its off, its off target effects. So, and, and, and the molecular mechanism of that at the time, we didn't have all these tools that you have today for, um, but that was the focus. But even then, tamoxifen had been around for a long yeah. time and work still needed to be done on Hugely figuring out drug. the mechanism. Hugely like, important drug. I mean, you know, hundreds of thousands of women a year or people a year with breast cancer. But, um, so yeah, it was hugely important. And so you were looking at toxicology in mm -hmm. particular? Of, of well, my PhD was in the toxicology program, but it was an interdisciplinary center where you chose a home department. So my PhD is in molecular toxicology, but I was in the oncology program. So a lot of the classes, the people every day that I worked with were all in oncology. Yeah. Okay. So it was, okay. The, it was the cancer research lab where I did, that was my kind of my home. Okay, so you persevere, you get your PhD, yeah. and by this point, you, you, you knew you didn't want to go on that mm -hmm. academic tenure track yeah. kind of thing. But so then what did you decide you wanted to do with this? Yeah, so I mean, I, again, I loved uh, biology. I loved the scientific method. I liked science. I loved it. Um, I just realized, I think, I don't know, halfway through or early, maybe early in my PhD, that I didn't want to be a professor and pursue decades, you know, the same question for decades, frankly. I mean, I know that sounds shallow, but I don't know that I didn't know that I could do that. Uh, th what it took, I, I felt like I needed, uh, frankly, an inbox and an outbox. You know, I wanted to be able to complete things, do things, um, see what I had accomplished. And maybe in my narrow view as a grad student, I couldn't see that in professors. You know, maybe that's not a fair characterization, but at the time it made sense to me. So um, I ended up doing a postdoc. It was a non-traditional postdoc. I mean, it was more of a technology focus. It was in a cancer research lab at the NIH, um, but it was in the, the institute that I was in was the, I worked for the scientific director in his lab. And it was a sort of a, I went back and forth between his lab and another institute, the scientific director's lab there. So it was, you know, there was a lot of, uh, energy and the project, you know, we, it was high profile enough. We had, you know, Congress people coming in to tour the lab. And it, so it was fun. It was so this by now is the late nineties and you're mm -hmm. at the NIH. And mm -hmm. one nice thing about NIH is they have a lot of resources. Yeah. Like the new tools come yeah. out. You, you said technology and yeah. they're able to get them. Right. And this, when you work in the scientific director's lab, that lab has first access to the budget. So they always have, you know, the, the most interesting tools, um, and so that's why this project, which was a heavy technology focus, had to be done in with the SDs, the scientific directors, you know, supporting it. It was an early part of the basically the human genome project, understanding genomics on a larger high throughput scale um, before we could make libraries easily, before we could shotgun, way before we could shotgun sequence or how would you interrogate the genome? So um, that's what got me interested. It started interested in genomics and led me to you know, 
my first job. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Did you work yeah. on microarrays? Yeah, I mm-hmm. did. Yeah. So this was the the early gene chips. Right. The and, early. And lots of people were using them and finding mm-hmm. different patterns of gene expression. Yeah. Um, so this was enabling lots of discovery. Yeah, and, it was. Um, you know, the first. I was, by virtue of you know just whatever this choice, I was one of the first people to apply like to build and apply microarrays. Um, like when I went to the Society of Toxicology meeting, I was the only poster at the meeting talking about. So it was an, it was a crazy time. It was a lot of fun. Um, there was a lot of excitement around the idea. I, I, I you know I think it's fair to say I coined a term uh, toxicogenomics. I was the first to use about the intersection of toxicology and genomics. How you can do predictive gene signatures for compound action. But yeah, it was it was fun. Now, how did you end up going into industry? Um, again, I knew I didn't want to be a professor. Um, I was really interested in the intersection of technology and biology and science. Um, but I got the, somehow, I'm not sure how I got the biotech bug. Um, I thought, well, if I'm going to do a startup, if I'm going to try one, I should probably do it when I have nothing to lose. You know, I, all I have is a house plant, you know, right? I can't, I, so... Um, so I was interested in going into a biotech, um, or a startup just to try it. It turned out that a friend of mine, um, from graduate school, who was some years behind me, published a paper in nature biotechnology on a, a digital way to make a microarray, which again, at the time was this super cool idea. He, it spawned a company. He and I were the first, I was the first employee of this company, um, he was the founder. We got funding. We built it, and and over seven years, we it was a heck of a story. It was it was uh, it was fun, and, and I learned an enormous amount. This was Nimblegen. Yeah. Now, yeah. why did you want to go work at a startup as opposed to a bigger established company? I I don't know. I mean, it just appealed to me. I, I guess I don't know. I interviewed at everything from big pharma's to uh, you know thinking about early stage companies, but. I think it was just a risk appetite thing that I just really wanted to try to build something and I wasn't afraid to fail. But you were young and didn't yeah. have, you said nothing but a house plant. You weren't yeah. married, no kids. No, I, I got engaged right at that point, but my fiance now wife was up for it too. So uh, it, it worked out okay. And what were you thinking if it failed? I just do it again somewhere else or I'd do whatever I'd you have to you know and that's I think something really important that I've learned is you have to trust that whatever got you from A to B will still be there and get you from B to C that it's not you know that that it's that it's something that's decisions you've made and you'll make good decisions and you'll find you have to have the courage to believe in that and that's something fundamental I think um, well, you knew you had your education and mm-hmm. you had some networks by this point, mm-hmm. some idea that biology was in a growth phase. Yeah. And if it doesn't work out, something else will be there. Right. Right. I, that Optimism. was the way I thought about it. Yeah. Uh huh. And you moved back to Madison for this. I did. I never planned to move back to Madison, but you know, you build networks. You build relationships with people, and then those are the things like this that pop up, you know. Uh, so, yeah, I um, I moved back to Madison to help start this company and then ended up staying there for, you know, I guess from that, it was a total of 27 years from when I went there for grad school 
I left for a little while to do the postdoc and then I went back. So I went back for another, you know, 15 years. So you're NimbleGen, you're early employee, yep. you, you kind of grow up with the company. Yeah. Uh, at yeah. Learning a lot of the functions of the business. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, but, it was super important for that, for me, career-wise. And so the company was ultimately acquired by Roche, yeah. and um, I guess you stuck around there for a little while, so you got some yeah. sense of like what happens when large, small companies right. get acquired by big. Uh, what was your next major yeah. move? Well, it, it Nimblegen gave me the chance. What I like about startups is that um, you you get a chance to experiment with your career. You know, you get to try different things. If it's a growth startup, which you hopefully it is, every day there's some new job that somebody needs to do and nobody's trained to do, right? And so somebody has to do it. And um, what that means is that you get to try stuff and you kind of can just find your path. I figured out before that and then during the Nimblegen phase, I found a role where I was good as the translator of the science for the, you know, I was the junior business person on the team at Nimblegen in the beginning and then became a more senior person. Actually, I think was arguably one of the architects of the partnership with Roche and the sale. Um, and so I really enjoyed that. Well, let's so back, I, back yeah. up a bit. So you're, you're classically trained in yeah. the science and that's yeah. initially what turns you on, but you, you made a switch into yeah. more business facing roles. Yeah. Why did you do that? I, I knew, I mean, I had an experience as an undergrad where, um, my Hal White, that professor, pushed me to go to a conference for undergraduates. And it turned out it was a competition. I didn't know, but we had to make a 20-minute presentation. And um, it was the first major presentation I ever gave. I stood up and gave it. And I just, it was this incredible rush. Like, I really enjoyed it. Um, and I had a moment where I, an out of, truly an out of body experience. I've had like four or five other times since then where I, there's an inner monologue saying, you know, I'm talking, I'm giving the presentation and I'm present. And then there's an inner monologue saying, wow, Emil, this year, you know, this is going well. What do you think? I wonder what's going to, there's two dialogues going on. And, and I've found that's happened, you know, a handful of times in my life. And it's when it's a really intense experience that I enjoy, um, where I notice the inner monologue. It's, so anyway, I had that experience. I realized that I really liked telling stories. Like I loved the idea that I could make this science accessible to you, the listener, mm -hmm. you know? And so I just tried to find a way to do that. Okay. So then you go, uh, did you go next to CDI? CDI, so yeah. Now, mm -hmm. for the listeners not, not familiar, yep. uh, what was that company all about? Yeah. Cellular Dynamics was a company founded by Jamie Thompson. He's a professor. Well, he's uh, retired now from the University of Wisconsin. He was the gentleman, the scientist who cloned the first embryonic stem cell, first in mouse and then uh, first in rhesus and then in um, human, um, the human embryonic stem cell. This is a big deal. I remember yeah. I was in Wisconsin at the time. He made the cover of Time magazine. This yeah. was, you know, ushering in the era of cloning yeah. human beings or yeah. we imagine that right it was heady you know people didn't know there were a, there was a lot of hyperbole a lot there was a lot of misinformation a lot of unknown too so it was both exciting and scary for for society i think um i mean i would be in in jamie's office and you know the phone would ring and um and i i remember this happened i'm sitting in the office with jamie and the phone rings and i said are you gonna it's ringing and ringing and ringing and, and i said are you, what do you want to you want to get that? And he said, very matter of factly in perfect fashion. No, I prefer to get the death death threats on, you know, on the the machine. <laughs> um, and it, yeah, it's just it was a crazy time, you know, because so. But 
but honestly, working with him, you know, every week, him sitting with him and having him, you know, the rigor that he, the way he thought about stem cell science and having to live up to that and sort of trained in that was really a great experience. I mean, it was, and I learned a lot, uh, and I both as a scientist and, you know, in that discipline, stem so cell biology. He, he was famous for cloning those embryonic stem cells. Mm -hmm. Uh, but what was the idea for the company? Well, the company was, the idea was that, um, if we could put the pluripotent stem cell under industrial control, meaning you could grow it and truly control its expansion well, and fate, right? Let's yep. back up a second. What year are we talking about? Um, well, th it was right before they founded CDI um, before the IPS publication, Induced Pluripotent Stem Cell publication, which was 2007 and 2008. So the company was founded right before that. So it was founded on the science of embryonic stem cells, and then it was recapitalized as an IPS cell and embryonic stem cell company. Okay, this is an important yeah. distinction because yep. the cloning of the embryonic stem cells involve uh, the discarding of embryos, mm -hmm. and that was the ethical problem yep. many people had. But that had been essentially resolved by right. the 2007 timeframe with right. the uh, Yamanaka's discoveries and Thompson mm -hmm. in parallel the the induced pluripotent stem cell technology that you could take an adult mature cell and and induce it back into that embryonic like state right. where it could become any right. cell that you wanted it to become exactly so you could now make a pluripotent stem cell um, that contained the code to make any cell in that organism's body um, from any genetic background like we could make you know Luke's personalized stem celery meals or, uh, you know, a patient. Um, and that opened up the idea that you would have for the first time access to human genetics in experimental models. Like you could, you could ask questions about, do these two stem cell lines or the cardiac cells you make from them behave differently if they're derived from, you know, a patient with a single gene defect in a cardiac gene versus a control? Like you could ask, so it opened up two axes, actually, that were crushing limitations for science. The first was that, you know, the pluripotent stem cell divides every day. So it's an inexhaustible supply of material if you can control it. So in theory, and because it'll turn into any cell type in the body, in theory, you could make infinite supply of any cell type in the human body. That's, that's enormous, that idea, right? And then the second was now that it was that you could make it from any donor, you could now access any genotype and any cell type. So that axis, those two axes was a huge idea to me. And, and, and it felt to me like worth my effort. If we could get this cell under industrial control, then it would open up research models that we couldn't even imagine. And it would open up therapeutics that we couldn't imagine. You yeah. could take cells from you and me, healthy controls, and right. compare them with iPSCs from Right. People who have heart problems right. or neurological problems make you know, see what's going on in their cardiac cells, their right. neurons. All of that right. was bursting open. Yeah, it was exciting, and it, it to me felt like you know that had meaning to me that maybe that could be a good contribution I could make. Um, and that company, you know, now owned by Fujifilm. Ultimately, we were it was quite a journey. Owned and run by Fujifilm as a division, um, has 15 products, thousands of customers, uh, and they make these cell types uh, like cardiac myocytes or dopaminergic neurons, retinal pigmented these cells available in a vial, in a cryo vial. 
Mm-hmm. Um, they also have therapeutic programs where they're developing cell therapies. So by now, okay, you had worked on genomic technologies, microarrays. Uh, you've now worked on cell therapy. Well, yep. um, iPSCs, uh, enabling all kinds of research. There was a cell therapy mm-hmm. uh, angle in there as well. Mm-hmm. Um, several pieces are coming together yeah. in your, your career. How are you thinking about all this mix of experiences at this point and, yeah. and what you might do with that? Well, for me, I had, you know, you have these events that sort of shape the way you think about things. I, um, at the time that I, after, the, after, excuse me, after the decision to join CDI, I, um, had multiple friends in my immediate orbit affected by Parkinson's disease. Um, and you know, it's a terrible disease to see up close and let alone to deal with it as a patient. Right. But I wanted to do something about it and, um, it was very motivating and it still is. I mean, we, the the treatment we use for Parkinson's disease today, the standard of care was invented in the 1950s. Mm. Dwight Eisenhower was president. We, it seems we've got to do better. There has to be a better way. And it's this degenerative condition where once the cells are lost, what are you going to do? Small molecules, large molecules, they don't work well. Gene therapies. But to me, it seemed like, well, maybe we could make healthy cells and put them back. This is what seemed like crazy idea. Well, part of the problem is that our models aren't very good. The yeah. animal models for these neurological conditions right. are just not the good analogies to the human experience. Mm-hmm. But if you've got iPSCs derived from human people, mm-hmm. maybe that will lead you down a more fruitful right. track. Yeah. So that was, that, that was a part of it. And the other part of it was motivating idea and that we could make pure midbrain dopaminergic neurons, this very rare cell in the middle of your brain. And when you make the right cell and transplant it into those animal models, it did functionally alleviate, functionally cure the animal of the motor symptoms, the motor deficit. So, and there were studies in humans of analogous studies where it suggested this could work, that if you put healthy cells back in the brain of a Parkinson's patient, the right type of cell in the right location, um, that you could, you know, functionally reverse or at least alleviate the motor deficit and maybe more. And that's what led me on now. It's been a 15 year journey I'm still involved in um, that, that I think is really important and it getting actually into, getting into therapeutics yeah yeah and mm. and um cdi that company has three therapeutic programs century century therapeutics for example is you know the core technology was a partnership with that with cellular dynamics um so there's there's three separate active therapeutics programs that came from that but um that journey led me to um my fourth startup um, there was another one in there that anyway, uh, that was uh, focused on cellular therapies with Parkinson's um, being one of the key. Programs. Was this Blue Rock? Yes. Yeah. Okay. And now that was another successful outcome. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah. what what did you? Um, what was your main challenge there? Because now this is you, you were the CEO mm-hmm. from yeah pretty much the start. Yeah, from inception. Um, I've been so in Soma my job today my passion today is my fifth startup mm-hmm. and um i feel like i've learned and and by fifth i mean like the first four at least i was the first employee it's raw materials really like a cell phone and a piece of paper was the company um and i've learned a lot about that um that's led me on this journey the first one was that was was a research and diagnostics platform but everything since then that 
cell therapy that I talked to you about with CDI became a focus on therapeutics. So um, everything I've done for the last 20 years or so has been in therapies, either cell or gene therapies. Um, yeah. And Blue Rock, you know, Blue Rock started with the right raw materials. So I was passionate about the idea that we could make a difference in Parkinson's disease. And in my opinion, the world's leader in that science was a researcher in New York. His name is Lawrence Studer um, and his collaborator, Vivian Tabar. Um, and the two of them had done some of the foundational science in this field, published the, you know, the recipe for how this might be done. And um, Blue Rock had aggregated before, you know, at company creation stage, before any people were hired, these that got that program. And so I just really wanted to see that done. Um, and so and and I was both um, arguably uh, a science expert and a business expert in this very narrow niche. And so I was pretty well suited to do that thing. How did you become the CEO? Did someone um, recruit you? Yeah, I, well, I was the president of CDI. So we took CDI up, we took it public, uh, we on, you know, on NASDAQ traded for two years. And then in the process of looking for capital, we ended up getting acquired by Fujifilm. Um, and that was basically because we had to fund therapeutics and we needed hundreds of millions, not tens of millions anymore per year. And so, um, so I stayed with Fujifilm for two years and I was the president of that small division. Um, and then, um, when I, you know, I felt like it was the right time it, at that time, Blue Rock was getting started. The venture group I had, um, I had been searching potential part, the, the landscape for potential partners for CDI. And in those conversations bumped into the ultimate, uh, venture capital founders of Blue Rock. Mm -hmm. So when they got to the point where they were ready to, you know, uh, found the company, they called me in. Occam is a global executive search firm focused on entrepreneurs and venture capital investors. Occam Global not only recruits CEOs and other C-suite leaders, but also plays a strategic and tactical role in building out optimal boards and advising on governance issues. Whether it be an executive chairman to provide leadership guidance for a first-time CEO, or functional experts in R&D, business development, finance, or operations, Occam's broad-based network in life sciences provides a maximal number of potent options to their clients. Occam's board clients can be companies at the earliest stage, those preparing for a public offering, or public companies seeking to enhance an established board. Connect with them at www.occam-global.com slash long run. And do you want to be a part of the world's largest biotechnology industry event? Come to Boston from June 5 to June 8 for the 2023 Bio International Convention. Join over 14,000 biotech leaders from dozens of countries for one week of partnering, networking, and robust educational sessions. With unparalleled networking events like the receptions at Boston's Premier Music Hall, Big Night Live, or the party at the MGM Fenway Music Hall, this is the place you'll want to be this June. Register today at bio.org events. So this brought you to Boston. Yep. Because uh, now your career is focused on therapeutics. Mm -hmm. Madison, for all its lovely features, right. is more into research tools and supplies, mm -hmm. not a real yeah. big therapeutics town. Mm -hmm. um, so you come here 
with a with a mission to do what exactly with Blue Rock? You you want to yeah. develop cell therapies for Parkinson's? Yeah, I mean Blue Rock was cell therapies for Parkinson's and heart failure. We we had a mandate uh, from the venture backers, which is these two venture backers, Leaps by Bear, the venture capital arm, and Versen. There was two hundred and twenty five million dollars, which at the time was the biggest or second biggest Series A in history. Now. It's mega rounds are normal, but then it was a big deal. And there were no restrictions really on what to do with the money, which took to me tremendous courage, like to say, here's $225 million. We're going to try to hire the right people. And with the basic mandate, set them in motion and see what happens. So and what that was, was this? unbelievably exciting. 2018, 19, 17, 17, yeah, 17, 16, 17. The company was founded in 16. Uh, and that's when I joined very end beginning of 17. Okay. Okay. And uh, you end up getting yeah. acquired by Buyer. I mean, they, yeah. they were one of the early investors. Yeah. They, they were able to track the progress. Yeah. It was just the right time. You know, we had, um, we, it just, you know, companies are, uh, you know, you got to do at that moment with the inputs, the right thing for investors, patience, your, your team and the right thing at that moment. And still, I think the right thing was to partner with Buyer fully um, because it's, this is this concept, Blue Rock's concept, Insider Dynamics concept was entirely new. It's a new category of medicine where you're going to restore a function by putting cells back in the human body. It had never been done and it was going to take a long time and be very risky and it needed patient partnership. And, um, and we were just filing our IND. Uh, and it was the, you know, it was a two year trial because it's Parkinson's, which the readout is two years. It's very, and, um, the market was going crazy at the time, and um, it just felt like Bear was just the ideal partner, and has turned out to be a really good partner. And I'm still involved. I mean, I'm you know. And a lot of money had gone in, but mm -hmm. when a lot of money goes in, you need a big uh, yeah. exit for this to pencil, and mm -hmm. and it did. Yeah, it uh, was. I think the right exit for everybody. It, it hit the. Some would argue it was underpriced, but I think it was. You know, who knows where it'll end up? We'll find out. Well, but time yeah. is everything, right? You know, if you were trying yeah. to sell it now, it would. Um, yeah, <laughs> be a exactly. Story. I I joke with that because we did. You know, the headline was a billion uh, for the exit. Um, but if it works, that's what I mean by some would argue. If it works, it's, you know, it's, it's the first example of reversing a degenerative disease. If you can put, re, if you can re-enervate the human brain and restore a neural circuit, like restore a function in the brain, what can't you rebuild in the human body? This concept of reversing degenerative disease, um, it has not been done yet. There's been, you know, edges, edge cases around it. Um, I'm hopeful that the Blue Rock trial will be the first to show that. We'll see. When's the readout expected? Um, the company will be talking about it this year. There's nothing to talk about right now. Mm -hmm. I know it's not your focus now mm -hmm. because you've since yep. moved on. Um, so how did you come to this new opportunity yep. at Insoma? Yeah, so I, I'm the still the chairman of the board of Blue Rock. I, mm -hmm. I believe deeply in ex vivo cell therapy, that paradigm. Oh, so Blue Rock is is one of these kind of quasi-independent yeah, yeah. entities within mm -hmm. Bayer. Oh, yeah, okay. it's uh, in theory fully independent, and it's as close to that definition as you could get in practical terms. Um, it has an operating uh, mandate with a board, and you know management goes to the board every quarter, and the board approves budgets and headcounts, and um, you know all within the context of a larger pharma. Uh, business, but yeah, it operates independently and it's working pretty well. It so, really is. Yeah. 
Okay. Well, so I'm still doing that. But but over the two years that I was there as the CEO after the acquisition, I was thinking a lot about what's the best application of what I can do. I I really I try periodically um, to ask myself: Am I uniquely well suited to do this job? Like, not mm-hmm. can you do this? Not can I do it? But is this the best expression of what I know how to do. And also I'm better than average at this particular job. If when I get to the point where I believe somebody could do it better, then you have to have the courage to let somebody else do it. And I know that's that whatever. And it that's what that's what led me to the transition at Blue Rock because we needed someone who could operate an independent subsidiary inside of a pharma company with very large budgets, huge pipelines, someone who wanted to and had a passion for that and was good at it. And that wasn't my experience base. So once I realized that wasn't my long-term path, um, I started thinking about what I wanted to do. And I became convinced that the future of medicine was in vivo genome engineering, in vivo, you know, in vivo editing. So there's a couple things here. The, you still saw yourself as a startup guy, mm-hmm. the kind of yep. person who can navigate a highly ambiguous situation, mm-hmm. figure things out on the fly, work with a small team. Yeah. Uh, of, and you had led organizations of up to what? 200 people? 200. Yeah. Okay. 200. But this being part of a bigger company, right. that was better for someone else to do. I think better for someone who wants to go from 200 to 1,000 people, who wants to do late-stage clinical development and is passionate about it and also has expertise in it. Mm-hmm. I mean, you have to be honest when you face with those. That's not, I had never done that before. So I could learn it, but is that the best service of my teammates and everybody? And it's not, it wasn't. So I, I just, it wasn't, it was hard emotionally. It's always hard when you love something. You know, it's a love affair. Startups are love affairs uh, to make that decision, but it's it's the it's the right thing to do. So you, there's a self awareness that uh, I, I'm a startup guy, mm-hmm. a startup leader. That's probably where I'm best. That's my highest and best purpose mm-hmm. here on earth. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and then the question becomes: Okay, well, what's the kind of the technical yep. challenge, the application for patients? Yep. that that you think will be most impactful. Yeah, and I at the time I was the chairman of the Alliance for Regenerative Medicine, which is this, you know, uh, arguably the preeminent industrial consortium for cell and gene therapy. Um it's now over 500 companies. It's pretty much everyone in cell and gene um and it's dedicated to breaking down barriers either, you know, manufacturing and regulatory barriers, payer barriers, um legislative barriers to adoption of cell and gene. So that gave me, I just got it's odd the way you end up with these things in life, but I ended up on the board, then I was the vice chair in the chair, and it was an amazing seat to be in with all these incredibly talented people dedicated to cell and gene. And I got the, I had the honor of sort of helping to run the board and run this machine. And um, so it allowed me to see a lot is what you, I well, you get to see the forest as well as mm-hmm. the trees. Cause when you're yeah. in a company and you're, you're in yeah. the thick of it, it's easy to put blinders on and get mm-hmm. put off fires every single day yeah. and, and focus on the details. Um, but this, this is another side where you're, you're seeing the landscape and, and what did you see made you think um, in vivo uh, oh, editing was the way yeah. to go? I mean, I think cell and gene therapy is, I don't know how we can't be too, uh, expansive when we describe how amazing this tool is, right? It's our generation's Jonas Salk moment. Like our contribution is the control of the cell and the gene for therapeutic purposes. But we've also seen how incredibly limiting 
We've, we've all we've really demonstrated, not to diminish anything that's been done, is that it's possible, but it's not practical to do these things yet, right? So, but we all stand, we stand on the shoulders of what people have done. And for the patients that have experienced a cure or remission, it's like this incredible life-saving, life-changing event, but we can, you can see the limitations. So you're on Alliance for Regenerative Medicine board. Was this during the years of the Kim Raya and Yaskarta approval? Yeah. So those were watershed moments mm -hmm. for cell therapy, CAR T cell therapy for right. these rare uh, leukemias. Mm -hmm. um, huge complete response rates, uh, curing people who were uh, with a single shot, who were basically on death's door. Mm -hmm. um, open the floodgates to yeah. new opportunities with engineering T cells. But most of this was happening outside the body. And there were some practical challenges, which you were alluding to. Yeah. And what were they? Well, the, first of all, the whole concept of ex vivo, right? The, the, the fact that it takes place outside of the body introduces variables, uh, let alone forget the time and cost, okay, which are just practical limitations. You can, but to me, the biggest challenge there was the variables associated with an ex vivo processing. Cells do not like to be taken from the body. I was a cell, I consider myself a cell biologist now, pluripotent stem cell biologist. I did spend the last 15 years studying cells and culture. And the idea that we were going to be able to reproducibly take cells out of your body from patient to patient to patient, process them, engineer them, purify them, put them back in the body and get a reproducible response. That was going to be, that just did not seem like a good hypothesis to me. It, 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 you can do it once, you can do it twice, but can you make millions of the same thing? I think is very challenging. So the whole idea of ex vivo, and then if it's not auto ex vivo, autologous ex vivo, then allo ex vivo, the idea that we were going to make aloe work seemed like a bigger challenge. Aloe being allogeneic, allogeneic off yeah. the shelf, as in any universal cell, it doesn't need to be a precise genetic right. match to you or me. Right. You can just take it. Right. Again, I think we will cure patients with the, these aloe approaches that we see today, just like we've cured people with these ex vivo autologous approaches. The question is, is that the best we can do? Not, is it incredibly important, the contribution made there? Um, and the answer is, was clearly no to me in my mind. Um, so I think it was this challenge of ex vivo, the allo auto, and then the realization that you, you're not, we're still only treating liquid phase tumors and we're getting these amazing results, at least short term, right? In a subset of those patients, but we're not talking about the total burden of liquid phase, you know, or even solid tumor. Well, as and we're talking right yeah. now, there are, I don't know, a handful of these approved therapies against two antigens, I believe, mm -hmm. CD19 and BCMA. Mm -hmm. uh, thousand companies. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> working in this area. Right. I mean, and, and all of that unmet need that they yeah. mentioned. And you, it just seemed obvious to me, the third sort of just major thing that hit me in the head is it's to crack complex disease like oncology, you need a therapy that addresses that complexity. You need a combination therapy. I mean, how many validated targets are there now from inflammatory cytokines, suppressive myeloid cells, checkpoints, uh, modulation, T cells and CAR receptors, things that we know work, but you can't put them together yet. But we know that they work. And when you think about, when you look at the way a tumor, a solid tumor, truly cured, it's because the entire immune system recognizes it. And it's not just a CAR T that's recognized. It's not a single T cell. It's an adaptive response 
the innate and adaptive response. It's the entire immune system. So to me, it it's that said to me that this is going to be sophisticated engineering and not a one-step process. This is going to be a multi-step, multigenic approach to complex disease. So I wanted something that, and yeah, so that that was it. It was this these um, remarkable problems, but it just highlighted the challenges. I wanted something that would solve that. So in parallel, uh, all this progress has been happening with engineering T cells, mm -hmm. uh, vectors to deliver the genetic payload you want uh, to to uh, uh, engineer mm -hmm. these cells. We haven't even talked about CRISPR, mm -hmm. uh, the ability to edit, mm -hmm. knock out or knock in certain genes that you want. Mm -hmm. um, those can go into these these cells too. Mm -hmm. um, so now you're kind of trying to put together a couple pieces of the puzzle. Yeah. This yeah. is this is is this how you were thinking about? Absolutely, and I've always maybe been attracted to the big idea and the platform that could solve the challenges. And and those platforms are never a single thing. So they require you to put disciplines together. I mean, so to solve all those challenges, to me, it had to be an in vivo engineering strategy that happened in the body, preferably with a single injection, right? And then I thought about, well, what would I want to engineer? If I could engineer anything in the human body, what would it be? And the question to me, the answer to that is obvious to me. It's the hematopoietic stem cell. It's the most powerful single node of biology in your body. It's the source of your entire blood and immune system. All those suppressive and excitatory cells and molecules all come from that root directory, right? And it penetrates every organ in your body, contacts every cell in your body at every moment of your life. So it's the ultimate delivery tool. And, and arguably, the immune system is involved in every disease. So to me, if you could do one thing, it would be the ability to reprogram that cell in a simple step in vivo and maybe be able to control some or all of its downstream biology. That was a big idea. The idea that you could marshal synthetic immunology to address complex disease. You could turn on multiple nodes of the immune system simultaneously to go after complex disease like a solid tumor or autoimmune disease. Things that just, to me, seemed very difficult to crack with a monogenic or, you know, ex vivo approach. And this uh, builds on, again, decades worth of work. I mean, we've had bone marrow transplantations uh, right. for a long time that right. do cure people right. with um, certain forms of cancer. Uh, but maybe this is the uh, way to think of it as a step further, right. that, that you can introduce specific edits uh, to, to do even more once that immune system has essentially been rebooted. Mm -hmm. That's absolutely true. I mean, that's absolutely right. It's been, we've known for decades that organ the organ transplant of bone marrow transplant is curative. And that you can, we now know we have approved therapies that you can engineer that cell outside the body and put it in and cure, right? Mm -hmm. So we know that the, the the bone marrow transplant is curative. We know that engineering those cells, you can fix genetic defects. So um, the, we know that to be true. Um, the question is, could you do it in a simpler way in vivo? And could you control the, that master regulator? So you become aware of... 5AM Ventures, and they have some yeah. similar interests, or how, how did this uh, come yeah. together at um, Soma? I was, you know, in dialogue with how to make the right transition at Blue Rock. We re we hired an entirely new management team, team that was, you know, focused on going from B to C, 
as an independent subsidiary. And I'm really proud of that team. It's a great team. Um, and the company was in a great place. So that's when I started thinking about um, when, you know, and and then at some point, somebody sent Insoma across my desk. Um, and at first, it, it didn't quite click for me. It took a second for me to see that it was exactly what I was looking for. The ability to in vivo edit the hematopoietic stem cell, which to me was the holy grail. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Hans-Peter Keim at Fred yep. Hutch, Andre Lieber at University mm-hmm. of Washington, a yep. c- couple of others. Uh, those two, those are the two founders. Yeah. And, and I didn't find, I was the hired, I'm the hired help. I came in at, you know, I think I was employee number 40 or something. Mm-hmm. Um, first time in my career. It's been, it's, it's been fun. Um, um, so how far along was this work and what have you been able to do in the first yeah. couple of years? Well, you know, the company now is a little over two years old. Uh, the first year spent setting up, you know, uh, right. And establishing the place you're sitting in right now, the lab, the operations, the team. Um, and we've been able now to do, I guess, a few fundamental things, reproduce the founder's work. So for example, we have in our vivarium here in this building now routinely curing mice of hemoglobinopathies, the disease model, and we can routinely do it now. It's pretty cool um, as an example. So we've been able to reproduce that work, extend it and make it, we think, even better. Um, We've been able to um, take the process science that we inherited from Andre and Hans-Peter, the ability to make the vector and the design and the the tech ops to make it and improve that. And now we've actually tech transferred it to a an external, a CMO, CDMO partner. And that partner has now is manufacturing GMP grade and scale product. So that's super exciting. We, we, we feel fully enabled for the clinic from a, from a manufacturing point of view, the capabilities, the partner can now manufacture beautiful product. So we did that over the last year and a half or two. We built the team. Um, we've built a really exciting, uh, oncology program. Now we were, um, exclusively genetics, uh, you know, a year or two at the founding and even a year ago, we're now both a genetics and an oncology company. Uh, our lead indications are in oncology, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, so we had to build all of that, all the models and all the capabilities, the team, um, the, the advisory committee and boards and things like that. So, um, and then last year, you know, I mean, that was a heck of a ride. 2022 was, uh, you know, uh, unlike any year I've experienced um, in biotech and getting the company financed. And uh, we did some really, I think I'm really proud of what we accomplished last year in terms of financing and recapitalizing the company and, uh, or capitalizing the company. And, um, and in the partnership, we acquired a little uh, uh, structural biology, CAS engineering company which has been a critical element of our platform and is an exciting piece too. Now, the company had raised a Series A financing mm-hmm. before you joined? Yeah, the, the A, I joined after the A, which also included a rare disease deal with Takeda Venture, uh, Takeda, um, and an investment from Takeda Ventures. So there were two, you know, Takeda did two things. They put some money in and equity, and they also, we have an up to five target deal in rare disease with Takeda. So that was the founding of the company. I and, joined after that. And how much was the A round? 70. 70 million. You joined then. Uh, you said 2022 was a year unlike any other. Yeah. How so? Well, I mean, I think the macro dynamics were, you know, no one, we, you just had to be very creative and nimble and responsive. Um, this, we were a series B company. 
and the series B's, the independent series B's evaporated. There were the crossover investors literally evaporated from the mark, from the series B market. There was no crossovers. So the whole strategy of financing the company had to be different. You couldn't, and that, and I, that's why I'm so proud of what we did. We finished the series B, we finished in December. It was co-led by an outside party, uh, independently priced. It's a great round. Um, and, uh, and also we acquired, uh, you know, 12 bio at the time too. So you got so another 80 million, which, 85, yeah, which you, you needed to, to keep doing yeah. everything that you had just said. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and this was, um, a, a, uh, a recession. Yes. Uh, you could say, I mean, we don't really use that word, but I mean, it really was oh. no, no IPO market crossovers disappear venture capital really slowing down, interest rates going up, mm -hmm. lots of tremors in the in the broader markets. Yeah, I mean, the, the people that we would have gone to to finance, those crossover investors, those people that take you to the bridge over to the public markets, those people, if you were an investor in 2022 and you got up in the morning and you had a choice, either go left and invest in privates or right in public companies, if that was part of your mandate, you could make that choice you weren't making any private investments. You did all you were doing was public because the public markets were so cheap, right? Yep. It was a historic moment. So those people, it's not that they didn't like the private stories. They just, public was so cheap. But what you're doing also yeah. is, is preclinical, but it's also, I like, guess, really early. It's and, early. And pretty yeah. far out. Mm -hmm. I mean, you're not even talking about an IND, right. you know, next year, yeah. right? Or this year. So um, you got just a, um, a lot of work to do. Um, yes. Can you can you back up just say a little bit more about your technology and what you're using? Yeah. You, you've got uh, what kind of vector are you yeah, using? So we we combine um, first in class genome engineering tools. I can describe what I mean by that with first in class delivery. Our goal is one time in vivo treatments that precisely engineer any cell of the hematopoietic system. So um, we have these excellent genome engineering tools that a combination of base editor like properties that allow us to either knock out or change a single base we have a and c base editor like properties and then we have uh the tra a transposase that allows us to insert 35 kb into the genome the reason that's important is it allows us to do everything in vivo from make a single base change to put in 35 kb of new content and that is needed in oncology. If you, you want to put in a car construct or knock out, uh, you know, a suppressive, uh, a suppressive cytokine or uh, extend the, the, you know, the durability of your cell by knocking out a gene, you need these capabilities. So it's the combination of that first in class engineering tools, all of which fit inside this vector, this phenomenal vector, which is based on helper dependent adenovirus. So this is, you know, fourth generation adenovirus. Um, the genome has been entirely removed. There's no viral genome. It's only the capsid. And that gives you the full 35 KB packaging capacity. You can put anything you want in. And that packaging capacity is delivered to the nucleus of the target cell, not to the cytoplasm like an LNP uh, or other chemical methods. It, by virtue of being a viral capsid, a, um, a VLP, it will penetrate the nucleus and your DNA is in the nucleus. So it's this amazing delivery tool. So this adenovirus has more carrying capacity as well. Yeah, it's helper-dependent adeno. So it has no... AAV, AAV doesn't have this kind of AAV capacity. AAV is like 4 or 5 KB. This is 35, 37. Mm -hmm. 
So what was exciting to me was, again, if, if you came to believe, as I did, that engineering the hematopoietic stem cell was going to be the most important thing we could do in vivo, in order to take advantage of that many cell possibility, you know, you have the HSC at the top, but it, it makes any cell type in the body. Think of that as many permutations of cellular therapies you could make. You need a large payload in order to take advantage of that many genes. You need to be able to introduce more than, you know, a 1KB construct. Otherwise, so what? So the idea of many cells and many genes, that intersection was new to me. And it engenders this new new area, I think, an entirely new area. So what are the next key technical milestones that you and your team need to prove to yourselves? Um, well, we know that we can durably engineer the hematopoietic stem cell. We've reproduced the founder's work. We can serially transplant. We've done it in many different model systems. Our founders have published tens of papers. I think there's four curative models published in mice of in vivo engineering to cure the genetic defect, right? So we're confident in that. Now, applying that to our lead indications and to oncology, where we're newer to the science, getting that disease model uh, proof of concept is something we'll see this year. Uh, getting so, so I guess I'd say uh, in the lead programs, the disease model biology proving that this year. Um, we have some really exciting work this year showing that our base editors can work in vivo in different contexts and can multiplex in ways that nobody we think is enabled, that we can actually safely multiplex three, four targets at a time because of the virtue of the way our system's designed. We think that opens up really exciting therapies like in sickle cell where there are, you know, you could, uh, if you could triplex inactivate fetal, reactivate fetal hemoglobin, that would be a good thing. So there's, there's novel applications of these capabilities in the therapeutic world. That's what we're doing in this year. That's, that's the biggest. Now, yeah. um, people listening to this might wonder, in vivo gene editing, you're going to get one real bite at the apple here. Mm -hmm. You've got to be really confident that yeah. you're editing exactly what you believe you're editing and not other things, because this is a very consequential event. Mm -hmm. um what how are you thinking about safety and yeah. and uh and the risk because it's a yeah. very consequential edit Absolutely. you're you're trying I mean, to make i mean anytime that you ask a patient to sign up for your experimental medicine you're asking for a leap of faith right i mean and you can't take that too seriously i mean safety is the only priority in the first step um now having said that if you design the trial correctly you can get a guess at whether it worked or not we all know we want in cell and gene, we want the miracle of the cure in that first step. That's not the objective. So I just would start with that, would say that's the only objective is safety. Um, having said that, I'm not sure, my perspective on this is that any step where you're engineering a cell with a genome engineering tool, ex vivo or in vivo, requires you to understand the target and off target, on target and off target effects. I'm not sure that there's a distinct uh, there's a distinction with a difference here in okay. terms of how you do those edits because to me you better show that you were on target and not off target no matter how you're doing it or mm -hmm. where you're doing it because if you're so, wrong it's irreversible yeah damage is done right if you're wrong the consequences could be severe so but i think that's true of all of our colleagues in cell and gene therapy and engineered cell therapy. And we see that like in, you know, my look at what Allergene and the, and the courage it took them to get through their hold 
across their whole portfolio. That's an ex-vivo engineered T-cell therapy, right? And it was about genomic stability and an on and off target and engineering. It's the same question of whether you, now we have really exciting, uh, you know, the potential for uh, an approval of a CRISPR in vivo medicine or a, a CRISPR medicine ex vivo for sickle cell yep. disease. It's going to be a big milestone for the field. It's phenomenal. It's incredible. And we all stand on the shoulders of that progress, but it's the same question. Whether, why is it different, right? I mm -hmm. mean, you still have to show on and off target. Now, of course, it gets a little more complex with more variables, but it's the same basic. So we take that very seriously. We're, uh, you know, we, um, we think we have some pretty profound uh, advantages, I guess I'd say. Are you talking yet about targets and specific indications? We're not, except to say it's oncology. We're not publicly saying that. I'm sorry that I can't mm -hmm. more. Mm -hmm. but How far away would you say this is from uh, entering its first clinical trial? In, within the next two years. Within yeah. two years? Yeah. Okay. Um, and what do you see as the, the cost and access proposition that you yeah. will someday hopefully be able to make yeah. to the medical field to patients i mean we started with a basic premise and this predates me that we know how to cure genetic disease it's just completely impractical to do it for the vast majority of people crispr vertex when they succeed and i think they will their medicine incredibly important and it will cure 10 to 20,000 people. There are four and a half million people with sickle cell disease. So mm -hmm. what, why, what's the difference? And that just comes down to this, just not practical to ex vivo engineer bone marrow and go through a whole bone marrow transplant. It takes too much time. It's too expensive. It's so difficult for the patient to endure. You can't do it in low resource geographies. You can't even do it in the United States in, unless you're, you have access to Brigham and Women's or UCSF, you know, a transplant center that can do this. So, um, so you have to have a better tool. We have something that today can in vivo engineer the hematopoietic stem cell that if it worked the way we expect with a single injection can do that. That and, and then the question is, can you manufacture it, administer it, do all the normal things of a drug? You don't have all this, you know, right. You, you, now you're into the more traditional challenges of a therapy. Uh, they're still cell and gene related, but they're about manufacturability and preservation and shipping and, you know. But your product will eventually be a liquid in a vial yeah. that the healthcare professional can just take out of the fridge right. and inject. Absolutely. One That's time. Right. And and so your cost of goods is, yeah. is probably looking a little more like traditional antibodies or... We hope. I mean, uh -huh. you know, we're not there yet, but, you know, this the thing about adenoviral biology is it is a really efficient process, actually. Um, now, and the helper-dependent adenovirus system that we use, these virus-like particles, take advantage of that. So we're manufacturing today hundreds of doses with, and, and it's not difficult to do, and cryopreserving them, and they're, you know, the material's stable. And that's, in our first couple years, that's what we've transferred and we can do today with our CDMO. So you can now imagine, you know, orders of magnitude, you can get to tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands. It's not actually that crazy to say anymore that we'd have an off-the-shelf therapy that's available to anybody who would need it. Now, so. you're not in a position to speak for CRISPR Therapeutics and Vertex on yeah. their pricing of the right. cure for sickle cell, which we do expect the FDA to most likely approve sometime soon in 2023. But most everyone thinks that's going to be 
well over a million dollars just just for the sake of argument what you're describing is a product profile that will definitely not need to be priced right in that kind of range right i mean you know price versus cost this whole debate i you know i think um i'm gonna stay out of that debate except to say that we the reason we're doing what we're doing in soma is because you think there's enormous opportunity to make a medicine broadly available well a whole lot of time and money needs to go into uh, a company like Insoma to like figure out all the science to develop these therapies to to make sure that they're safe and effective. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's some kind of reward. Mm-hmm. We need to have some kind of incentive, yeah, for people to do this because right. if there is no incentive, no one will do it. Right. Yeah. But <laughs> the question is, how much should we or can we pay yeah. on the other side of this? Yeah. As a society. And if every therapy is going to be a million dollars, well, then it's just not going to scale. It's not going to reach all the people who need it. Uh, But what you're describing here, what I think I'm hearing, Mm -hmm. is a product profile that can reach the masses with, say, sickle cell or these various kinds of of cancer. That's the objective. That is absolutely the objective. I wouldn't be here if I didn't think that's what we're going to achieve. It's, you know, manufacturing tens of thousands of doses, freezing them and being able to administer them and the economies of scale that come from that. You're now QCing, you're taking, you know, whatever, 10 vials from 10,000 instead of instead of 10 or one from two. Uh, that QC cost, the, the stability testing, the manufacturing, the, the overhead of the clean room, all those things are divided by the number of units you make at per unit time. So in CRISPR's phenomenal medicine the case of that it's one unit made per unit time divide you know it's, it's obvious but so. you'll be able to do this in the united states europe asia yeah africa that's why, why not yeah that's the hope and we i'm really excited i don't know if you noticed but our financing round at the end of last year involved a strategic partner the bill and melinda gates strategic investment fund mm-hmm. um and they they've been a partner of uh, that have been funding the academic research in Andre Lieber and Hans-Peter Kim's lab now for a decade. And um, so there's a lot of trust and a lot of respect, mutual respect there. And so we began working with the Gates Foundation, built a relationship, and we have this incredibly exciting, they're an equity investor in our, um, in our company. They put money into the last round. And as part of that, we've agreed to the sort of the humanitarian rights that go with that and wholeheartedly agreed with that, which is to make sure that our product is available in these low resource geographies like Eritrea and Uganda and places where you would typically never go, right, as a biotech. And um and and that included, you know, that involved a lot of discussions back and forth to make a good deal for both of us, but it's super exciting. Uh it means if we succeed, there's a chance that it can actually get to these literally millions of people that would not be able to access it otherwise. So it's, and what a team to work with too, the Gates Foundation. They've just been, they've just been great. So it's really a fascinating challenge. Um, Mm -hmm. Single shot, gene editing, Mm -hmm. curative therapies, low cost, Mm -hmm. broader access. That's, and they, you know, the Gates Foundation, one of the things I found interesting was their sort of ruthless focus on the needs for that low resource geography patient and what that means like this patient in pick one of those countries is in a comes into a rural clinic might have to walk for you know an entire day to get there to this clinic or more they're not going to come back 
you're going to get them one time in that clinic, right? Mm -hmm. So you, you can only count on that one time. So your therapy has to literally be one time and it were, and that product specification for lack of a better word, that is an incredibly challenge. That is way beyond what we do for cell and gene therapies today. And that drives uh, uh, thinking about what's really important and how you can solve. And it's just really cool. I mean, it's really exciting to think that that might be possible. One time the patient gets the treatment and, and their life could be changed. That's, That's a great way to think about it. You get one shot, make it count. You, do, you don't, you, you're not guaranteed of another chance with these patients. So, so anyway, it's, it's cool. And it, it's an example of, you know, finding a way uh, that we can both uh, you know, meet our goals, right? They're one of a group of investors that supported us at the end of the year. Excellent. I'll have to follow up with you yeah. in a few years and see how yeah. it goes. Emil Neweiser, thank you so much for joining me on The Long Run. It was a pleasure. Thanks, Luke. Thanks for listening to The Long Run, a production of Timmerman Report. Pedro Rosado of Headstepper Media was a sound editor. Music is from D.A. Wallach. See you next episode.